When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you heard, read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. He responded, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those who, to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, there are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made, who've made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Leave the little children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then, some young, someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, he said to him. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked them. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. I have kept all of these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go, sell your belongings, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving, because he had many possessions. Jesus said to the disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter responded to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first about family this morning. Uh, how is your family tree producing fruit in your life? Uh, whether we like it or not, we're shaped by our families. We inherit this mix of biology and culture, nature and nurture, uh, this picture of fruitfulness, a set of values to live by or to reject. And this inevitably produces something in our lives. 
the family systems that we're part of. We, we bring an image into the world that is somewhere between a reflection and a rejection of our family of origin. And you might be anywhere along that spectrum, depending on your family. But family is important for shaping who we are and how we live in the world. And this is part of why family works as a religion for non-religious people. And perhaps even for religious people. Now, the nuclear family, sometimes our family feels nuclear in the bomb sense. But it's where we embrace all sorts of sacrifice to do the best for our children. Uh, living with an ideal image in mind, this is the best picture I could get of 2.5 kids that wasn't gory, uh, but 2.5 kids with a good education, successful careers, grandkids. Uh, this sort of family project is one of our biggest idols and it's one we've often bought into in the church. Some of us can't imagine being truly human without creating that sort of family. There are two other big modern idols, money and sex, and, and they're connected to this family one too. You don't have kids without sex. Sorry if you haven't had that conversation yet. Um, and money helps you pay for your family, the, the things that we need or we've decided are needs. Uh, now they can work without family, of course. We Aussies don't think about sex as tied to procreation anymore. It's often more about recreation. And if you ask someone if they can imagine a flourishing, fruitful life without marriage and family or sex, you're going to get a lot of blank looks. The thing about our family idol and our family trees is that families are so often disappointing. They so often produce fruit in our lives that we want to get rid of. They're full of mess and dysfunction. The mess and dysfunction we receive and then that we try really, really hard not to pass on to our children. A parenting, in my experience, is 90% trying not to mess up my kids. Like, I want them to be like me a little bit, but mostly not. It's okay if they're like Robin, but she doesn't want them to be like her. Just, it's very confusing. Our families can end up feeling more like hell on earth than heaven. Uh, they can be healthy sometimes, but they can also be harmful. And I know many people in our church community are grappling with that experience of their families of origin and what it looks like to be part of a family now, whether it's a biological family or even a church family. See, we can work on changing the patterns that we've been brought up with by recognising them and then working on growing ourselves up, cultivating a different sort of fruit in our lives and relationships. And often that's what you do in pre-marriage counselling. You get taught about these patterns, about how your family of origin shapes both of you. And, and so you ask about how your families dealt with conflict, how they communicated, how our families have shaped our expectations around what's good. And that happens in pre-marriage counselling, but maybe it actually needs to happen for all of us as we figure out how to live in community with others as God's family. Because when we talk about Jesus bringing the kingdom of God to earth, what we're actually talking about that we see unfold through Matthew's gospel is Jesus creating a new family, a family of God, a family that comes with a new value system, a new picture of fruitfulness, a new nature that we're to nurture together and a new image that we're to live in the world. And this family is meant to be part of what transforms us as we become children of God. We're meant to make family not something we worship, but the people we worship with. 
And so if you remember back in the Beatitudes when Jesus talked about the people of the kingdom, the, the blessed peacemakers, he said they would be called children of God. This is a theme that's been working its way through the gospel. Well, this comes with this new model of relationship, peacemaking. And in chapter 18, the one just before what Sarah read for us before, Jesus unpacks a bit of what peacemaking looks like in this new family system. A pattern of forgiveness for a brother or sister when they sin against you. And it's a pattern that Jesus says you don't just do seven times, which feels like a lot, but 77 times and he's just expanding that. It's a lot of times. It's a pattern of behaviour in this family, a pattern that emerges from new hearts, from receiving forgiveness from God so that then we forgive our brother or sister from our changed hearts, a a breaking of the cycle of violence and a cycle of brokenness that can make family so harmful. And forgiveness isn't the same as reconciliation or restoration and this new pattern can be abused when someone's heart isn't in it And that's why Jesus has rules about taking people with you to meet a brother or sister who's wronged you if they won't take responsibility for their sins. So if you confront them seeking to bring restoration and forgiveness and they won't do it, then you bring others. If they won't listen, take one or two others. From this point forward, you are never alone with the person who has harmed you. You've got your family there with you doing the work together of living out this new pattern of forgiveness, but also of protecting one another from harm, protecting victims from being abused in an ongoing way by someone who refuses to acknowledge their wrongdoing. See, the way forgiveness has sometimes been used to weaponize uh, this idea and keep victims under the control of the person wronging them isn't what Jesus pictures at all. From the moment that the person denies that they've done you harm, you are never alone with them again. The relationship has changed, but there's still a commitment to peacemaking, still a commitment to being a family of God with this new pattern of relationships. And Jesus is so keen for his family to take personal responsibility for our sin, to recognise the harm that it might do others, that he tells us we should wear the pain of fighting sin ourselves. If sin's going to affect these relationships, you should cut it out. It's better for you to do that, to cut off your hand or foot if it causes you to stumble, if it causes you to sin in ways that hurt others, than to go on hurting them and earn judgment. Part of this logic here is recognising the harm that it does in this pattern of relationships. There's a flow in chapter 18 to recognise that we're to deal with our sin rather than inflicting pain on others. It's a new family pattern. See, Jesus knows how costly sin is because he paid the price of sin for us. He experienced the patterns of a world built on vengeance and violence at the cross. But the cross also becomes our new family tree where Jesus models love and forgiveness as he makes us God's children, as he takes on the penalty for our sin, our separation from God in our place so that we might take up his life and become children of God. We've seen in Matthew how taking up our cross becomes the pattern of life in God's family. It's where the deadly cycle of sin and violence is revealed at the cross, but at the same time God's pattern of love and forgiveness and taking on the burden of restoring relationships is also fully on display. We experience God's forgiveness in a way that allows us to make forgiveness part 
of our pattern of life. And this new family tree creates a new family system where we become children of God, where we become the heaven meets earth family of God, new image bearers recreated by Jesus. So there's been some hints of this along the way, that this is part of Jesus' mission, to create new brothers and sisters. Like when Jesus' real brothers and sisters, his biological family turn up and someone tells him that they're there and he says, oh, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? My family, my mother and my brothers, are those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Those who are part of this new family system, this kingdom. Remember the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says the people doing that, the people part of the kingdom, are his family, his disciples, the people of the kingdom, little temples bridging heaven and earth, his image bearers. Now to bear the image of God isn't just to rule over the world and represent God as priestly rulers do and we've seen bits of that through Matthew's gospel it's not just our job to expand God's heavenly rule his presence to expand Eden over the face of the earth as we be fruitful and multiply filling the earth with God's image and his rule to be made in God's image is also to be a child of God there's a hint of this idea in Genesis chapter 5 uh, which comes after Adam's son Cain shows what it looks like to be unforgiving to be consumed by sin, to grasp and to kill, even killing his own brother. And that's followed up with a little family tree in Genesis with a descendant, Lamech, who's built his life on vengeance. If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech 77 times. We've just seen those numbers, haven't we, in the words of Jesus. Forgiveness rather than vengeance is at the heart of this new family pattern that's different from the one that Adam's sons in Genesis display but after Cain kills Abel we meet Seth another son who we're told is made in the image of Adam in his likeness in his image part of being made in the image of someone is being a son a child a son or daughter and Genesis provides us with a story of a family tree that produces death and violence and vengeance and curse that we see bear its fruit at the cross while Jesus provides us a new family tree that produces life and love and forgiveness and fruitfulness that we also see on display at the cross. As we are created by Jesus as sons and daughters, image bearers, children of God, who are then given a new nature by the Spirit and a new way of nurturing one another towards this pattern of fruitfulness. And so we have to learn to be children in this new family. That's what Matthew 18 and 19 are about, being children of God, what it means to be disciples, to be brothers and sisters. And Matthew 18 starts with the disciples who are meant to be Jesus' brothers coming to Jesus, asking him to sort out a fight. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's like asking who's the favourite kid in the family and that never goes well, unless you're the favourite. Might cause your sibling to kill you like with Cain and Abel, but it never goes well. And Jesus, he does something funny. He, he gives them an object lesson. He, he takes a little child and he puts the little child among them so they can all see this kid. And he says, greatness for children of God looks like this child. Unless you change and become like little children, like this child here, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
In fact, if we want to secure our place in the kingdom by being great, by accumulating power or wealth, bringing stuff to God in our hands, saying, look at me, God, let me in, Jesus says that won't work. In fact, it's if you take the lowly position of a child that you become great in the kingdom of heaven. And this little scene has two implications. Jesus calls us literally to welcome children. Like there's the object lesson going on where there's a, a child and he says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. But he's using the child as a metaphor for the children of God. And so the other implication is that we are to learn not just by having the child in our midst, but becoming like children and welcoming one another into this new family. And as we do that, we're actually welcoming Jesus into our midst. As we become part of God's family, united in him, and welcome one another, we learn what it means to be children of God. Welcoming each other not on the basis of greatness, like we might think of it, but greatness like it's displayed in this child. And then there's a dire warning. Anyone who causes one of these children of God, now it's not just literal children, but God's children, anyone who causes a child of God to stumble is worthy of death. And death by pretty extreme drowning. And I, I think we can understand wanting that sort of judgment when an innocent child is harmed. I don't know if you've felt that as you've read the news this week about children being harmed by evil people how you feel when you read those sorts of stories but we we want that sort of judgment and jesus is saying god feels this way about all his children and he loves and wants to protect us in chapter 19 we get another little picture of this family of god this new dynamic this new set of values and a new picture of fruitfulness when it comes to being god's children what it means to come to jesus like little children with empty hands and so Jesus is tested by the Pharisees and they, they ask him about divorce. And there's a lot going on in this little exchange. First up, there's actually two parts of the law of Moses that talk about divorce. Two parts of the Old Testament law that were used and understood as talking about divorce at the time of Jesus. And this is important as we dig into what Jesus says. See, in Exodus, there are rules for when a wife could divorce her husband. Part of the mess of the marriage laws in the Torah is God is dealing with people who've been in Egypt, not in Eden. And so there's men taking multiple wives and the law has got to figure out what to do with that. They've strayed a long way from the ideal of Eden. But in Exodus, a woman could leave her husband if he married a second wife and stopped giving her food and clothing or shelter and sex if he stopped keeping the marriage covenant. She was free to leave. If he abandoned or abused her, she can leave freely. The marriage is over. And now some scholars have looked at how this Jewish law, this Old Testament law has been picked up by the rabbis to create three grounds for divorce where a woman could leave her husband. And Paul actually picks up this idea of abandonment in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as legitimate grounds for divorce as well as sexual immorality. But Jesus is asked about Moses commanding that a man can divorce his wife for any reason, which is probably a reference not to Exodus 21, but to Deuteronomy 24. And this is another law in the Old Testament that's been developed by the rabbis in the first century. And Moses said a man could divorce his wife because she's displeasing to him over something indecent. And what that had been traditionally understood to be 
was sexual immorality. Until a very influential Jewish rabbi in the first century BC, a guy named Rabbi Himmel, said displeasure could be over anything, even a burnt meal. He basically brought in no-fault divorce at the husband's initiative. And you can imagine how this was playing out in a patriarchal society and who it gave the power to. And so the Pharisees are asking Jesus about a live debate. There's different interpretations of Deuteronomy 24 going on. And Jesus says, well, Moses didn't even command divorce. He changes their word. He says, Moses permitted divorce due to hard human hearts. And in fact, the way God designed marriage and family is not what we find in the law of Moses and in dealing with life after Egypt. The design for marriage we find in the Bible is from the beginning, from creation, where a man didn't rule over his wife, but men and women ruled together over God's world. Jesus goes back to Eden, back to image-bearing, back to what it looks like to be children of God who participate together in being fruitful and multiplying the rule and reign of God, his kingdom, fruitful, Edenic life over the face of the earth. And so Jesus quotes Genesis 1 to them. Didn't you know, haven't you read, that that the Creator made them male and female, image bearers, who would partner together in being fruitful and multiplying? And then he zeroes in, on Genesis 2, that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus zeroes in on marriage as a one flesh union between one man and one woman that is meant to overflow in Eden into fruitful life, into sharing the task of cultivating and keeping the garden as they be fruitful and multiply. And look, it's often said that Jesus doesn't speak into our contemporary understanding of sex and marriage or or how we define it, but this is how Jesus understands what marriage is. He goes back to Eden, to a one-flesh relationship between one man and one woman for life geared towards fruitfulness and multiplying. And he sees these two people, the man and the woman, joined together by God, so divorce without legitimate grounds, is actually tearing apart something God has put together. Now, that's a lot. And I want to be clear here that Jesus is rejecting a male-driven approach to no-fault divorce that was harmful to women in the first century. Uh, He interprets Moses as talking about sexual immorality, not about burnt toast. And he provides an answer to the Pharisees that calls them to something bigger. He sets the bar high. He sees marriage as important, as God-given for those who are married. And the disciples get that and they say, well, if this is the case, it would be better not to get married at all. And here Jesus shows that fruitfulness and multiplication in the kingdom of heaven isn't about marriage or those things that we idolise, but life for the sake of the kingdom. And choosing that life will involve rejecting the things that we idolise or reframing them as good gifts from God. And that might involve not having sex or not getting married or not having children because you're devoted to living with God's kingdom as priority number one, not your own kingdom. And Jesus says, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's better not to marry, but not everyone can accept this. And Paul will say a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 7. 
And he says there are eunuchs, people who couldn't marry or have children, uh, those who are born this way, those who not pursue marriage because that's how they're wired, or, or his understanding, they, they recognise his understanding of marriage as between one man and one woman for life, and that's not what they desire from the flesh. There are those who are not voluntarily single, or those who've been surgically altered. Now, often in this context, that was so they could serve as part of a royal household without threatening the purity of the genetic line or without uh, being a threat to the wives of the king. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. We find it very hard to accept this, I think. The idea of giving up marriage, sex, biological children, family, the things that we idolise even as Christians, we find it hard to imagine giving those things up for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus says it is hard. It's hard to imagine sometimes for us because we don't see it that much in the world or the church because we've made it such an essential part of fruitful, flourishing humanity. But it should not be hard for us to imagine this sort of life in the context of the church because Jesus is exactly someone who lives this way. It's hard to imagine because of how much we've bought into the world's vision for sex and marriage, but Jesus is someone who does not get married or have sex for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of producing children of God. He's tapped into a different picture of fruitfulness and multiplication, and it's one that goes back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, God promises that eunuchs will bear fruits that that will be part of something better than having sons and daughters, which is what fruitfulness looked like in the Old Testament. They'd be part of something enduring and eternal, part of the kingdom. Within the temple and its walls, I'll have a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will endure forever. They'll be swept up into the kingdom. And this is weird, because there's actually a law in the Old Testament that basically excludes eunuchs from the temple. So something new is promised in Isaiah, something new is coming with this new picture of fruitful multiplication of the people of God, this new bringing of heaven to earth, caught up with the temple and the name of God and having your name connected to his. See, Isaiah sees those excluded when fruitfulness depended on procreation, finding a place in this new kingdom built on a new image-bearing people, spreading God's glorious name as his living temple. If God's kingdom was just about procreation, then marriage would make sense as vital for membership in God's kingdom. But Jesus has come to create a new family, a family of people who delight in doing what pleases God, doing his will as his sons and daughters, and so participating in his kingdom and being fruitful that way. And that's all going to come to a head at the Great Commission, at the end of the Gospel, when Jesus takes his disciples, his family, up a mountain, and when he sends them to be fruitful and multiply in the world. When he sends them out, go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations. Produce fruit, image bearers, by teaching them to listen to Jesus and to do God's will and so become his children. But then back in Matthew 19, we get two visual illustrations of how the family of God works. First up, Jesus is just 
told his disciples to look at a child and to be like a child and to not put barriers in the path of a child as a picture of God's kingdom and what being part of God's kingdom looks like. It's not about human pictures of greatness. And the disciples are dumb, at least at this point. There are these children who want to get to Jesus. Their, their families have brought them along, literal children. And the way the disciples treat these literal children shows that they haven't understood what it means to be children of God yet. They haven't got this new family pattern shaping them here. The kids have come to see Jesus, but the disciples rebuke them and try to keep them away. And Jesus says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus gathers the children to himself. It's a beautiful picture of a fruitful eunuch, a man wholeheartedly living for the kingdom and still producing fruit, producing children of God. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children of God who are like little children, not self-important, grasping types who want greatness and want to turn people away. Children of God aren't produced by procreation but by recreation, by coming to Jesus and grabbing hold of him by God's work in our lives, by his Spirit, through the cross to make us children of God. And just then, after this episode with the children, we get the rich young ruler. This guy has everything, the disciples, and even the Pharisees, everything that they have as a picture of what's great in the kingdom. He's almost contrasted with both the eunuch and the child. He's a young man, he's got life at his feet, he's rich, he's a catch, he'll make a great dad in worldly terms, he's ready to supply all the needs of his family. And you'll note the disciples don't hold him back. When he approaches Jesus, it's like he's got heaps in his hands, heaps to offer his righteousness, his wealth, his ability to rule over the world God made. He's a young man. He's not a child. He's a fruitful young man in the terms of the world, in terms of worldly gain, in terms of righteousness in an Old Testament sense but he shows that he's not living for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. His hands are full of his own righteousness and wealth. He thinks he lacks nothing. But when Jesus invites him to give up his inherited picture of fruitfulness, this picture of the good life, to become like a child by letting go of all that, having empty hands and coming to Jesus, he can't do it. He won't do it. He won't give his possessions. He won't give up his picture of the good life. He won't switch families. He won't sell his possessions. And so he goes away sad. He goes away picking his family. He won't come to God empty-handed. He wants to hold on to what he has. He wants greatness on his terms. And perhaps we can be like that too. Thinking that we've got lots to offer Jesus and he'll just add us to the team because of what we bring to the kingdom. But Jesus says it's the children who come with nothing that are a picture of greatness in the kingdom. And the disciples watch this and they see the bar being raised again. They're astonished. Who then can be saved? They haven't quite got the point yet, have they, of the children? See, it's interesting though because by the end of the chapter we see they have started living like little children already, not like the rich young ruler. They have let go of everything to follow Jesus. They are coming to him like children, becoming part of his fruitful kingdom, the kingdom of the one who lives like a eunuch for the sake of producing abundant children of God. 
They say, we've given up so much to follow you. And Jesus says, you have. And he says, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You become heirs, you become rulers with him, those who've given up the things of this world to follow him. And everyone who changes our understanding of fruitfulness from what we can take and create with our own hands, from our biological family, even from the way we're tempted to worship and be shaped by that family and find life in the family of God, well, they will inherit the life of that family, eternal life. And as we do that, those of us who have biological families will reshape the patterns in that family and see fruitfulness for our children as being caught up with following Jesus and inheriting his life. See, this new family pattern is the pattern of self-denial, the pattern of putting yourself in the place of the lowly, putting yourself in the place of the last. It's the pattern of the cross, the pattern of realising we bring nothing in our own hands to God. No greatness or fruitfulness on our own terms to the table that earns our place in heaven, but we find fruitfulness by emptying our hands and grabbing hold of Jesus as he reaches out to gather us in as his children. Now, to finish this morning, I'm actually going to invite Matt to come up and share some reflections on what it means to be part of the family of God as someone who doesn't have his own biological children, someone who's given up all sorts of things for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Matt wrote a piece on his blog earlier this week that I'll, I'll tuck the link up to that in our uh, Facebook community. But Matt, over to you. Well, thanks for that introduction, Nathan. Um... Yeah, like Nathan said, um, I've had the, the huge privilege of being able to experience um, friendship with, with all of you, my church family, but especially with um, lots of the little ones in this church family. And I really do count it as a, a very special gift to enjoy the kind of spiritual family that, that Jesus promised in this passage. Um, that promise that for, for the single person, the eunuch, uh, the person who's lost father and mother, um, houses and homes, partner and children, uh, for the person who sacrificed these things to be part of God's family, uh, Jesus promises to restore a hundred times as much of those connections in the family of God. Um, and over the last few years, um, in this church family, as many of you have welcomed me uh, into your lives and families, I really have come to experience that richness of life in, in God's family. Uh, and especially the joy of having spiritual sons and daughters who I can care for and who can love me back. Um, so I want to share some insights of what God's taught me through those experiences. Um, but I want to make sure that I'm, I'm turning the focus away from, it's not about my behaviour or my experiences, because again, greatness looks different in God's kingdom. Um, and the focus isn't how noble or how fruitful our ministry might be, but about learning to become like these little children. Receiving God's kingdom. It's, notice it's receiving, not achieving. Um, receiving uh, the kingdom with a joy of empty-handedness. Well, one of the standout lessons that I've been learning uh, with kids and from kids is how God loves us as little children who have nothing to contribute to God and everything to gain from his love. Nothing to contribute to God, but everything to gain from his love. Because there's something different about these asymmetrical friendships with little ones that's different from friendships with peers. See, we, we don't expect a, a kid to, to offer something to us in the same way that we do to them. We don't expect an equal contribution. And actually part of the joy is being able to pour out our care and our resources for a little one whose only job is to rest in that care, 
to enjoy that connection. Uh, a few months ago, um, I got to see something of God's tenderness towards me uh, in some of these relationships. And this is towards the end of last year when we as a church family, um, we farewelled uh, these two little boys that had been part of Gemma's family uh, for a while. Um, those of you who know me probably saw how much I treasured getting to know those boys. Um, you know that, that uh, over time they came to occupy a really special place in my heart. Um, they'd be the first ones to, to welcome me when I get to church, uh, when they get to church, um, either with a surprise sneak attack cuddle from behind or by yelling my name loudly across the room when I'm up here leading worship. Um, as I got to know these boys, I got to experience something of the family that, that transcends biology, something that gives me a picture of God's adoptive family. Even with these kids that I'm not related to, I, I got to experience a very real sense of being church family together, a connection that helped me to, to reimagine what family really means in the kingdom of God. And this really hit home for me on the last weekend when these boys came to church before moving back home with their biological mother. Now, I'm not normally someone who cries easily, but I shed a lot of tears that week. And, and that was kind of a new thing for me. And I realized how special it was to have had these little ones in our church family for a year. And I realized how much they'd come to mean to me. I felt in myself that weekend, I felt such a, a strange but a deep tenderness and a, and a burning desire to care for these little ones, to see them protected and secure and loved. And so as I drove to church that morning, uh, I cried harder than I've cried in years. Um, my heart was just flooding with so many different feelings for these little people that I'd only known for, for less than two years. And it was a strange kind of loss to grieve because like, there was a real sadness in saying goodbye there was an, an even deeper joy of discovering behind those tears something of the tenderness that God must feel towards me. And I thought, if my care for these little ones is even half as strong as God's love for me, how deeply must he love us? I'd only known these little ones for less than two years, and if this is how strongly I can feel towards them, imagine God who set his heart on adopting us into his family before the world even began. Imagine that kind of love. Uh, one of my dear friends, Phil, has been in the process of pursuing adoption for the last four years. And I've seen in his life just how much time and energy and money and emotional labor he's invested in this process. And as I see that, it blows my mind to see the kind of love that would spend so much on bringing home a child that he hasn't even met yet. To wait years, to spend thousands so you can pour out care for a little one. I think it's such a special kind of love that doesn't choose someone because of what they have to offer, but chooses them out of pure love. What a beautiful picture of God. So I think about that a lot, how seeing ourselves as these little ones with nothing to offer God but everything to gain, and how it's so freeing. Because if our adoption isn't based on our worthiness, then nothing can ever threaten our place in the family. It was never about that. We're already in. We're loved, and that's that. And that's what it means to be a child of God. So I wonder what it would look like to let this shape our vision of Christian maturity. See, we often think of maturity as becoming more like a grown-up. But what if becoming more mature means becoming more like a child as well? I really love being able to do um, kids' church with the primaries downstairs because I get to learn so much from them about what approaching God as a child looks like. I think we could all learn a lot from the way a child reads the Bible 
Um, not reading it as people concerned with growing their intellect or their power or their usefulness for ministry, but learning about God from a place of curiosity and connection. I just I love the way these kids constantly ask questions about God. Uh, they do have this burning curiosity to learn, but it's not learning because they need the power of having all the answers. Uh, it's, it's just that to them, God is so big, so mysterious, and, and so awesome. Sometimes I wonder if we, we lose a sense of wonder and awe as we grow up, as we begin to feel like we are powerful, and we think that we figured the world out in black and white. And so maybe for us, maturity looks like recovering a childlike awe at just how big and mysterious God is, at this mystery that he would bring us into his family. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that I think becoming a church family that offers a taste of heaven on earth, it starts with embodying friendship with his little ones. Uh, when Jesus says, whatever you do for one of these little ones, you do for me, I think he's saying that as we care for children, we get to see something of the face of God in that interaction. And so we shouldn't think of caring for children as a distraction from the spiritual things, but an act of participating in the kingdom of God. Now, I have to confess that I, I'm guilty of doing exactly what the disciples did and seeing noisy kids as a distraction sometimes, um, seeing them as distracting from spiritual things. Um, a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a couple of you after church around the coffee cart. And as, was, as we were talking, uh, little Hugo comes up and asks me to play crocodile with him. But to my shame, I, I brushed him off so I could keep having a real conversation with the grown-ups. And afterwards, God convicted me about that. And I thought, imagine if God took that attitude towards us. Imagine if God only considered his equals worthy of his attention and never bothered attending to us. That's not the kind of God that we serve. We have an attuned father who delights in quality time with his children, with us. And so we can mirror God's likeness in the way that we might pause a conversation to play crocodile with the kids. Not seeing that as a distraction from the real work of the kingdom, but seeing it as the main game of God's kingdom. Or next time that we hear the loud noises of babies crying in church, instead of seeing that as a disruption to the real work of the church, what if we pause to thank God, to thank God for the care of holding that child close in that moment, to thank God that he's a parent just like that, one who doesn't stifle the cries of his children, but who remains present with us in our vulnerability. Uh, at the end of this service, we're going to finish by singing a song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And, and if you're someone who has the privilege of physically holding a child in your arms as we sing that song, then you have the special joy of embodying something of God's own posture to you in that moment, to all of us. And as you hold your babies, you, you bear that image for all of us of the God who holds us fast. And most of all, you communicate to that little one something of God's love that words couldn't say. Uh, holding a child becomes an act of worship because whatever we do for these little ones, we do for Jesus.